God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's take your Bibles and go to Job chapter 1. A structure of the book, as detailed by Dr. E.W. Bullinger, gives us a quick overview of the book as a whole. The book of Job as a whole then includes A, the introduction, the historical record, B, Satan's assault with Job being stripped of all, C, Job's three friends and their arrival, D, Job and his friends, E, the ministry of Elihu, D again, Jehovah and Job, C, the three friends and their departure, B, Satan's defeat, Job blessed with double, and finally the conclusion, the end of the historical record. Now in Job chapter 1, verse 1 we read, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Without getting too lost in the background of information that Bible scholars have submitted concerning the time Job lived, it is sufficient to learn that his lineage descends from Nahor. Benson commentary on this. We have observed that it is likely he was of the posterity of Uz, the son of Nahor, the brother of Abraham. But how far removed from him can only be conjectured from the age of his friends, the eldest of whom, Ilipaz, the Temanite, could not be nearer than great-grandson to Esau. For Esau begat Ilipaz, and the son of Ilipaz was Teman. So that supposing this Ilipaz to be the son of Teman, and higher it will be impossible to place him, he will then be five generations from Abraham. But as Ilipaz was very much older than Job, nay, older than his father, as appears from chapter 15, uh, verse 10, and considering that Abraham was very old before he had a son by Sarah, and that Rebekah, granddaughter to Nahor, by Bethel, perhaps his youngest son, was of an age proper to be wife to Isaac. We shall probably not be wide off the mark if we allow Job to be at least six, if not seven generations removed from Nahor. The age, therefore, in which he lived must have coincided with the latter years of the life of Jacob, with those of Joseph, and the descent into and sojourning in Egypt. His afflictions must have happened during the sojourning, about ten years before the death of Joseph, and his life must have been prolonged to within 14 years before the departure of the Israelites from Egypt. That is the year of the world, 2499, end quote. And that man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job was not perfect in that he had no flaws, but rather is defined as one whose inward heart was sincere in his reverence for God and his distaste for evil. Observe also that those whom God first delivers and then teaches greater truth about himself are those who fear him and seek to live their lives as perfectly before the Lord as their weak flesh permits. See, God works with no man who does not possess an inward desire to be both upright and blameless before him. For the true Christian then, 
Not even one sin will be deemed as a small and allowable thing. And though the righteous will sin, and far more than they would ever desire, in their souls no sin will be deemed as permissible. Job was thus such a man as was Noah, Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God, or as Abraham was called to be, Genesis 17, 1. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am the Almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Teaching us that where God is concerned, if men make casual allowances for their sin, they shall neither be reckoned as one of God's company, nor be used for his service. There is no evil greater than sin, and if men do not flee it, and highly esteem what an affront it is to God, then it will prove impossible for them to have any true and lasting relationship with God. God is righteous, and so for any to be numbered among his people, it is his own righteous integrity that they must pursue. It should not be presumed that just because Job feared God and eschewed evil, that he was in any way completely spiritually mature and understood totally the ways of God. If this were the case, then he would not have undergone both Elihu's and God's correction, seen later in the book. See, a fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but surely cannot be properly deemed as the end of it. So that when men fear God, it just informs us that they have begun the journey of walking with God. God's Word also teaches us that all true faith, like a fear of God, should be added to. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we read now, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, or add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if things be in you and abound, they shall make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith should be added too, even as the same can be said of a fear of the Lord. So that although the scriptures praise Job for his holy character, they in no way infer that Job knew all he needed to know about God and his ways with man. It would be wise for us to remember this as well concerning ourselves. For though we may have one good quality, it does not mean that there cannot be other lack in areas of our life. Thus, if any man does not think he needs some form of reformation in his life, he is spiritually ignorant at best. For we are, as Christians... As long as we remain on this earth, also remain unfinished products until through Jesus' power we are transformed to be like Him. This earthly life then should be so lived that even though we may possess a fear, belief, and trust in God, still there is a long way to go in gaining more understanding of the Lord and His high ways. Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts, and this is God speaking, 
are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I say this at 60, and as one who is reminded every day that gaining a proper knowledge of our Creator has just begun. This after 40 years of labor, during which, for the most part, I have spent an average of three to five hours a day in God's holy word. Yet even with this amount of diligent effort, I am more than fully aware that the God of the heavens is well beyond what any man could learn of him in a thousand lifetimes. God is that great. Job chapter 1 verse 2. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. We have observed the man Job. Now we see what he possessed. He had a large family and a great amount of physical possessions. Benson commentary on this. The account of his piety and prosperity comes before the account of his afflictions to show that neither of these will secure us from the common nor from the uncommon calamities of human life, end quote. Practically speaking, men should not assume that anything they have in this world can prevent unforeseen calamity. Human influence, whether it be our status and community or the number of our friends, or the wealth that we have accumulated, in fact, will help nothing to protect if there are still gaps in our spiritual armor. Regardless, then, of whatever material things men possess, they should never be misled to believe that these carnal possessions will keep them impervious to spiritual attack, teaching us that for all true believers who are, in fact, strangers, pilgrims, and spiritual sojourners in this earth, this world is always a dangerous place. Thus, absent a God to both protect and deliver his people, all men would be nothing but helpless prey. Man also, because he is in an evil and corrupt world, cannot survive without a holy and benevolent God to assist him. Job is described as the greatest of all the men of the East, but even this could not isolate him from what was to come. Remembering that every man's true help comes from the Lord, and he only can protect men against attacks, often which are invisible to the human eye, and proceed from spiritual wickedness from on high. To trust in anything less than the Lord, especially in time of trial, will bring heartbreaking disappointment. Job chapter 1 verse 4 now. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. While Job's character is described as noble and worthy of respect, what is told us of his children is their taste for worldly pleasure and entertainment. This is often the case with those raised with material abundance. Jesus' parable of the rich man illustrates also the carnal mind of those blinded from seeing beyond this life and living only to eat, drink, and be merry while in it. 
to have any attitude of merely eating, drinking, and pursuing merriment is far short of the wisdom needed to enter heaven. As many a man has lived a prosperous physical life, only to discover far too late that he never prepared for Jesus receiving him into heaven. Observe as well that though a man may be pious, it does not mean his children will follow his example. No doubt Job's children never learned what was the greatest attribute of their father, which was his holy and wise religious fear of God. A fear also which led him to avoiding all paths potentially leading towards departing from God and God's will for his life. Verse 5 now. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. The Benson commentary on this. And rose up early in the morning, thereby showing his ardent zeal in God's service, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all, well knowing himself, and hereby teaching them that all sin, even secret unbelief, ingratitude, and vanity of mind, merited condemnation from God, and could only be expediated by the shedding of blood and offering of sacrifice in a spirit of true penance and humble, lively faith. It may be my sons have sinned. His zeal for God's glory and his love to his children made him jealous, for which he had sufficient cause from the corruption of human nature. The frailty and folly of youth, the many temptations which attend the feasting, and men's proneness to slide from lawful to forbidden delights, end quote. Fathers, and especially God-fearing fathers, know far more of the Lord and His dealings with man than their children. Aware of God's judgment for sin, the man who loves his offspring will do all he can to try and protect them from youthful error, which can easily lead to their own destruction. But as is often seen, even with good parenting, children will ultimately do as they please. And if they internally lack a fear of God, then rarely will they respect the great dangers of sin. Job, because he was concerned about his children's spirituality, did his best to purify them by rising early in the morning and offering sacrifices to God for them. Job therefore knew that with all sin there must be payment and sacrifice made for it. Barnes on Job 1.5 that Job sent or sent for them and called them round about him. He was apprehensive that they might have erred and he took every measure to keep them pure and to maintain the influence of religion in his family. What father is there who loves God and who feels anxious that his children should also, who does not feel special solicitude if his sons and his daughters are in a situation where successive days are devoted to feasting and mirth, end quote. Whenever any, including our children, pursue and take great gratification in lives of pleasure, it should be a sign that Jesus is not their Lord. 
For none can love the Lord and at the same time love a world that is at its core totally contrary to Him. For those then who love the world and what it offers, therefore a true and sincere love for God will be absent. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. None therefore can pursue a life of pleasure and not forsake serving God. God and this world do not mix, so that when a man chooses one, he will by default abandon the other. Verse 6 now. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. We now shift from the historical record of Job to Satan's assault and Job being stripped of all, which begins with the sons of God, God's created beings, angels, coming to present themselves before the Lord, with Satan coming also among them. God is sovereign, and so those of his highest government must report to him directly. This seems to be customary and part of a general policy in heaven, where God's heavenly ministers must give reports and accounts on their divine activity in the Lord's celestial kingdom. What we have here is a glimpse of how even angelic beings must present themselves to God, that God's sovereignty demands that what is done in the earth is either forbidden by His order or allowed. There is therefore a heavenly court in heaven from whence judgments are made concerning the earth and the inhabitants upon it. And these judgments, depending on God's will in the situations, will set in motion many things on the earth. How wise will it be for men to consider that all life, material or spiritual, is under God's providence? Benson on Job 1.6 The scripture speaks of God after the manner of men, condescending to our capacities and suiting the revelation to our apprehensions. As kings, therefore, transact their most important affairs in a solemn council or assembly, so God is pleased to represent himself as having his counsel likewise and as passing the decrees of his providence in an assembly of his holy angels. We have here, in the case of Job, the same grand assembly held as was before in that of Ahab, 1 Kings 22. The same host of heaven called here the sons of God, presenting themselves before Jehovah as in the vision of Micah. They are said to stand on his right hand and on his left, a wicked spirit appearing among them, here called Satan, or the adversary, and there a lying spirit, both bent on mischief and ready to all the hurt that they were able, as far as God would give them leave. At the same time, it must not be forgotten that representations of this kind are founded in well-known and established truth, namely, that there are angels, both good and bad, that they are interested in the affairs of men, a point revealed, no doubt from the beginning, and that the affairs of earth are much the subject of the counsels of the unseen world, 
to which we lie open, though that world is in a great measure concealed from us. And such representations may also be intended to discover, to us in part at least, the causes of many of those things which happen on the earth and which appear to us unaccountable. Namely, that they arise from our having some connection with or relation to other orders of beings through the universe on whose account and through whose ministry many things may happen to us, which otherwise would not. Thus the dreadful calamities and afflictions which befell Job in such quick succession, are utterly unaccountable according to the ordinary course of human things, and seen almost without reason if he were considered merely as a human being, having no connection with, relation to, or influence upon any world but this, end quote. Verse 7 now. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? There is no doubt that God singles Satan out from the other beings present to ultimately use him for God's own great design. The Lord knowing that all Satan's works are mischievous, he brings attention to Job. It should not surprise us that God allows earthly trials in order to accomplish his ultimate end, which is the purifying and enlightening of men's souls. The Lord knowing what good he intends for man, even if while in the midst of trial men generally view it as evil. And yes, the Lord will use spiritual agencies and sometimes evil ones at that, to accomplish His divine purposes. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God's Son, is an illustration of this. For through Christ's death, which the devil engineered, God only brought many new sons to glory, Hebrews 2.9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hence, where Satan desired to murder the Son of God and did so, God's wisdom used his enemy's act to create more sons of God, teaching us that the Lord, because of his wisdom and power, is on another level than the devil. And though God's plans are a mystery to men, still they will always have a greater purpose. By the Lord drawing attention to his servant and praising Job for his character, he undoubtedly knew that this would arouse great envy in Satan. Since also Satan remained unaware of God's final purpose for Job, he unsuspectedly is led to assist in God's purposes. See, little would arouse Satan's indignation more than God bringing his attention to a man, a mere frail human being who was everything Satan was not. Job is placed as a model of faith to Satan, perhaps to remind him of Satan's own lack in true holy character. 
The Lord also asked his nemesis to consider Job and his righteousness, knowing as well that this would ultimately remind Satan to consider his own unrighteousness. Evil always despises and hates light, simply because it reminds it of its own fall from grace. The righteous then will regularly prompt great indignation in the unrighteous, simply because through them their own failures are exposed. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Ellicott, for everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Not only does the man that doeth evil love darkness rather than light, but he hates the light. Its presence makes manifest and reproves his works, which he would hide even from himself. It illumines the dark and secret chambers of the heart and reveals thoughts and deeds which conscience, seen in this light, trembles at and turns away to darkness, that it may hide itself from its own gaze, end quote. Verse 9 now, Job. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught or for nothing? Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. It took but a mere mention of Job to ignite an indignant response in Satan. Satan therefore responded that the only reason that Job feared God was because he was first blessed and protected by God. This claim, though, would prove false. Tragedy also will not change men's hearts, but only reveal what are ultimately in them. Trials not forming our character, but instead only revealing what it really is. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible commentary on this, Job 1.9, Fear God for naught. It is a mark of the children of Satan to sneer and not give credit to any for disinterested piety. Ellicott's commentary also adds some interesting thoughts on this verse. Ellicott, Doth Job fear God for naught? Manifesting the worst kind of skepticism, a disbelief in human goodness. Satan knows that the motive of an action is its only value and by incrimination calumniates the motives of Job. The object of the book is thus introduced, which is to exhibit the integrity of human conduct under the worst possible trial and to show man a victor over Satan, end quote. See, though Satan did not know it, all the harm he would flicked upon Job would one day be by God's hand reversed. So that in the end, through God's wisdom and power, Job, because of his loyalty to God, was made by God to overcome even Satan himself and the early wicked plans devised by him. Verse 11 now. But put forth thine hand and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. The vehemence in Satan's words reveal the hatred that lives within him. All creatures, including fallen angels like Satan, see things primarily through their own eyes. And since cursing God is what generally defines Satan's character, he wrongly assumes that if Job loses all that God has given him, then Job will follow the same pattern as himself and curse God.
Yet this was only wishful thinking and in fact caused a completely different response in God's servant Job. Benson on this. It was a great truth that Job did not fear God for naught. He got much by it, for godliness is great gain. But it was a false lie that he would not have feared God if he had not got this by it, as the event proved, end quote. Verse 12 now. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thine power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Ellicott's commentary on this. All that he hath is in thine power. Mighty as the principle of evil is in the world, it is nevertheless held in check by one who directs it to his own ends. Such is the uniform teaching of Scripture. We are not under the uncontrolled dominion of evil, strong as the temptation may be at times to think so. End quote. The claim had been by Satan that Job feared God solely because he had been blessed by God. In response to this, God yields power to Satan to only prove that he is wrong, but also more importantly, to help Job learn lessons about himself that he could not have learned otherwise. It is also wise to remember that God's ultimate concern is always the soul, so that even when we are faced with enduring physical and earthly hardship, God has purposed that it should be to help in the refinement of our souls. Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Joseph being sold by his brothers is a wonderful example of how evil intentions can be used for God's people's good. For where his brother's actions were aimed at causing him harm, God uses their envy to exalt Joseph and ultimately even save their own lives. Hence, even if Satan is allowed to touch certain areas of our life, at the end it shall be seen that all was for our own good and benefit. And although all things that happen in this life are surely not good, through God's wisdom and power, they shall be made to be good for His people, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Verse 13 of Job now. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And while he was yet speaking again, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. And again, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. 
And behold, there came a great wind from a wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young man, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 20 now, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshiped. As much as Job loved his children, even with their tragic death, still he did not curse God. While other men lesser than Job may have easily cursed the Lord at this very difficult time in life, Job did the opposite. What a great example of a man who possessed true religious piety, where either in blessing or tragedy, God is praised equally. If a man then truly believes, negative circumstances in this life will only bring him closer to the Lord. So that where hypocrites will fail under trial, true believers will consistently prove that the most important aspect in their life is not their body, nor their earthly possessions, nor even their family, which they no doubt cherish much, but their God. How then men react while suffering loss reveals the depth of their trust in God. Hence, when men still worship the Lord in pain, we know how much true loyalty they have to Him. Life shall try every man's faith eventually to properly reveal if there ever was any true faith at all. Ellicott's commentary on this. Moments of intense trial, like moments of intense joy, force us into the immediate presence of God, end quote. Verse 21 now, and this is Job speaking, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job possess a wisdom that is seldom held today, that when men either return to the grave or to the Lord, nothing of this world will go with them. Benson on this. And naked shall I return. I shall be as rich when I die as I was when I was born, and therefore have reason to be contented with my condition, which also is the common lot of all men. We go naked out of the womb into the world. As the weary child lays its head on its mother's bosom, death strips us of all our possessions and enjoyments. Clothing can neither warm nor adorn a dead body, a consideration which silenced Job under all his losses. The sanctified soul, however, goes out of the world clothed, and when it appears in the presence of God, is not found naked. Job wisely knew that whatever is gained after birth in this world is lost immediately at the time of death, so that no matter what a man possesses, it shall have to be relinquished when his body passes. There is therefore nothing more important than any man possesses, which is of greater worth and of more esteemable value than his own soul, simply because it is this part of man that God saves and brings into heaven. Mark eight thirty six. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul. These are Jesus' words, and they should be solemnly contemplated. For what profit is anything, even the possession of the whole world, if our soul is lost in the process? The primary purpose of this life, then, should be to so place our faith and trust in God 
that it allows him to save our soul. The Lord alone able to save the soul, even as this is not anything that any man can do for himself. Verse 22 now. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. In the agonizing loss of his children and the complete spoiling of his goods, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So sincere was Job's faith and trust in God that he did not bring blame upon him, even with the loss of all that he loved. Satan had been wrong and God proven right. There is another great lesson to be learned here. It is that Satan's assaults have as their primary aim to get man to curse God and turn against him. For when men murmur and raise their voices against the Lord, it is sure proof that they no longer desire God over them. Hence, Satan's main object has always been to lead men into the same rebellion as himself against God. The truth also is that Murmuring and speaking against the Lord is the very first physical evidence of rebellion. For he who is not afraid to speak against God proves he is fully engaged in defying God's rule. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 26. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, He hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. When there are trials in this life, men can do one of two things. Either they will respond with greater trust in the Lord or they will blame the Lord and find fault in his dealings with them. Every man's heart will make manifest when the trials, temptations, and challenges in this life force it to reveal its true colors. Every man also will be both tried and tempted to either prove or disprove his loyalty to God. What is also seldom known about trials that they are designed to guide men to think on higher and more important spiritual things. This is seen in Israel's trial with God feeding them with manna. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know, and this is the purpose, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live." Every trial of God, therefore, has very specific divine purposes, which, if God is trusted, will lead men to an even greater confidence in God's government and His will for their lives. So that even as God feeding Israel with manna was aimed at a much higher purpose of teaching Israel that man should not live by bread alone, but rather by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, so also do other godly trials have a higher objective in mind.